Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with team lead of the Enriquez Group. Hi, you Realtor listeners. Today I have Joe for the second time. I am lucky enough to try this again. You know what? I might know a little about technology, but I don't know that much about wine. I'm probably the horrible when it comes to wine. But I have today uh, the owner of Copper Canyon Wines and Provisions. Thank you, Joe, for being here. Thank you, Vinny. And uh, the beauty about wine, I'd say, is that you can explore the whole world through wine and travel. And uh, it's part of our culture. So uh, there's no wrong answers. Just go with what you like. <laughs> well, it, I, so my, my wife is a big wine connoisseur. And we actually did wine tastings uh, for her birthday a couple weekends ago. And so I'm trying to describe it. I know one word is uh, it's dirty, right? Is it dirty, dirty. Word yeah some people call it dirty that's like uh usually uh usually a flaw i would think um oh, and, okay. <laughs> but i i one time you know i i gotta tell you this story real quick there was this one time uh, there's a publication out of the uk called decanter and uh, they rated one of our wines and gave it like a 96 point rating which is a great score but yeah. part of the description of the flavor profile was shit and cherries oh. and I called the importer and I was like, what the hell is this, man? This like, this sounds horrible. And he's like, no, no. In the UK, shit and cherries is like, that's perfect. I was like, oh, all right, man, everybody's got their thing. Well, if, if you're uh, uh, born in the USA, hopefully you don't call any of Joe Wine's shit. If the UK, <laughs> I guess it's something different. But hey, I appreciate I appreciate you being here. Um, let's I mean, let's talk about your journey. I mean, you have a background in the wine business. I think, I mean, you talk to people and I know people love wine, but to get into it, I mean, that had to be kind of a daunting task, kind of walk us through your childhood. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think it, it, well, I'll start by saying that the, the best way to make a small fortune in the wine business is to, uh, start with a big one. Um, so <laughs> that's, that's where, you know, you see a lot of, a lot of people come into this industry, especially Napa Valley, these like blue chip properties that are, are looking to um, create a lifestyle brand and uh, be able to like, you know, make their mark in uh, the landscape of this, you know, great region. Um, but you do need a lot of capital to do it. That's one of the, one of the uh, hardships of it. And you're not getting any return on any investment for, I mean, depending if you start from vineyards, you're looking at probably eight to 10 years. If you're just starting with grapes, you're probably looking at four or five years. Um, and so it, it's a lot of time to tie up capital. Um, but, uh, for my journey, I started, uh, around 2000, um, started working for my family who's in the wine industry. Uh, they started in 72, but they were also making wine pre prohibition, uh, after immigrating to the U S from Alsace. Um, and, uh, and so I started just learning the ropes, did a lot of work in the vineyard and the winery, um, with my dad when I was growing up and started a brand called Bell Gloss, which is, uh, this guy right here with the red wax. Um, the focus was Pinot Noir and it wasn't really like a popular variety back then. Uh, but I loved it. I started uh, by growing it and then making it and then, uh, and then, and then launched a brand and, you know, bringing your own product to market is, um, an exciting piece, but it's also, you know, riddled with, you know, moments of anxiety, right? You're concerned about what people are going to think of it. Um, and, uh, did you price it right? Uh, we took a different approach to the wine and really pushed the envelope to make these really voluptuous velvety, uh, rich styles of Pinot Noir. And uh, fortunately, the you know the customers out there enjoyed it. I think the majority of America has a palate that's similar to mine. And that's kind of what I followed was what I liked eating and drinking and uh, and and created this wine around it. So um, started in 01. Um, you know, I'll give you the quick, quick numbers. I found myself in uh, about $2 million in debt uh, by I'd say about 06. 
um, and uh, and felt like I was never going to come out of that hole. Um, and uh, Pinot Noir became a popular variety, and and you know, fortunate that was a timing thing. That was total uh, total accident. Um, but we were staged for growth at that point, and then we were able to create. Um, a lower-priced brand along with Belle Gloss and saw both of those blossom at the same time. Um, and one of those wines becoming the, the largest selling Pinot Noir um, in the world, actually. Um, and uh, we did sell that brand in 2015. But through that process of building it, um, I learned a different way to kind of go to market than what my family traditionally did, where they were more, you know, family-owned, fa uh, family-operated, just very small production. Um, and I wanted to satisfy the demand out there. And uh, had a had a ton of fun doing it, learning new ways of doing it, trying things that other companies hadn't done. Um, and it was just, you know, innovation, uh, innovation in marketing, innovation in winemaking, uh, innovation in our route to market. And we were able to create uh, some some great brands and to this day continuing to take those same philosophies, um, evolve them and uh, and add to them and uh, and be able to, you know, create a better experience for at the end of the day, the customer that wants to enjoy wine. All right, so there's a lot of things right there to, to, to unpack and and kind of so we're going to rewind a little bit rewind a little bit <clears throat> so your family original roots from overseas you said for prohibition they were uh making wine so when did they make it to the u.s do you remember it was the late 1850s uh they made it to yeah. the u.s made it over to california within a few years um and then they homesteaded here in uh, napa valley which back in those days there wasn't much here i mean there was a, a grist mill. Uh, there were there was a small town of Napa and Saint Helena. It just wasn't wasn't all that much. But they started uh, growing grapes, making wine. That's what they knew from their past life in in Alsace, um, and uh, and then started selling it. It was mostly bulk wine, so they'd bring it down, you know, um, on on a wagon to downtown Napa, put it on a boat, and the boat would take it over to San Francisco, where it'd be sold um, and enjoyed. But it wasn't like a quality region like we know today. It was really just you know alcohol. Um, so they did that up until they were shut down in uh, due to prohibition in the early 1900s, and they resorted to prunes and walnuts, uh, but they always uh, made some home wine in the garage, and uh, that kind of set the, the you know foundation for them to um, start uh, back up in the wine industry. In the late 60s, prunes and walnuts were not making them any money. My grandparents were going to move to Australia, sell the farm here, and uh, pick up farming uh, in Australia. And instead, they uh, they decided to stay here um, and uh, and start uh, Camus Vineyards in 1972. You, you you brought up before too the idea of innovation, bringing it to market. How much innovation has come to the actual winemaking process? I mean, over the years, I, I'd say like the fundamentals are all the same. So take red wine, uh, you're going to be destemming. So you want to take the berries off of the cluster. They go into some type of vessel. Uh, then you ferment them either using native yeast or a certain yeast strain. And then that converts all the sugars over to alcohol. And then you uh, barrel age for, depending on the variety, could be nine months, could be two years. Um, so the fundamentals have really stayed the same, but it's all the details that have changed so drastically. The technology that we can use now for um, destemming, uh, the rate at which we can destem, the quality of that destemming, where we're looking for whole berries so you're not crushing and macerating that fruit. So the gentleness in which these these machines can do that is great. How we get it to tank developments like what we call cryo extraction, where we're using freezing methods to freeze the cell walls in the skins so that the color compounds and those mouthfeel components are uh, more available to us to extract during fermentation, creating that, that style of wine that we're known for. Um, so all those things have really uh, been great advancements. And even in the vineyard, I mean, 
what we're able to manage in the vineyard from um, the technology standpoint, the innovation on the technologies, it's like if we're irrigating a vineyard, we know exactly how many gallons per minute are going out to the field. If there's a break in a line, um, if some emitter is not working, we know that there's an issue. We go out, assess it, fix it, and it makes our vineyards more consistent and higher quality on average. And you're able to do this um, all through devices. We also have probes in the ground out there that tell us exactly what the moisture level is at different levels. So we can control how much water there is because you don't want to give vines too much water. You want to keep them a little stressed so you get more concentration in your fruit. So on every on every element of the business, um, innovation and technology has really played a huge role, especially over the last 10 years. Being being that you're working for your father, how much innovation was he taking on? Because some people, I guess, are set in their ways. Hey, this is how we do it. And when new technology comes about, change can be difficult. So as a young kid, probably understanding the technology is coming about, were you able to implement it with your father or is it something you had to wait until you actually had your own brand? Yeah, my, my dad was always uh, very open to new ideas. Um, I think the, you know, the one thing he taught me was, you know, number one, none of my wines were ever perfect. Uh, and he would let me know how it could be better. <laughs> so, and there was always going to be a way, but it was always, you know, he always supported me in any, any, you know, new trials I wanted to do. And it was always experimentation. I mean, we still do it to this day. Um, so I think that he had that in his mind from when he was younger and started in the wine business, that it was, it was really about progress. And a lot of the wine brands we know today, um, you know, they, they rest on their laurels, they find success. And then they say, no, we got to make it just like this every time. Well, the industry will pass you by and then the customers are going to be migrating to uh, different brands. So if you're not evolving, you'll, you know, likely be dissolving at some point. Um, so my dad definitely was open to it. Um, and uh, I was very aggressive at, at bringing things uh, in that, you know, would work or didn't work. And uh, you learn from the ones that don't and uh, and you expand upon the ones that do. <laughs> With the, because how, how long are, are the, is the wines in the barrels for, before you can actually serve them? Yeah. So for like uh, Pinot, it's typically about nine months to a year for Cabernet. Um, it's typically about a year and a half to two years. Uh, you know, Chardonnay um, can be anywhere from no oak all the way up to two years in oak. Uh, so it really depends on your style. But for, you know, from a general perspective, uh, that's kind of how, how we look at, uh, look at how long it'll be in barrel. And it's just really about, for us, tasting. We'll go through and taste each one of these barrels um, every few months and uh, kind of see where that lot is at, as we call it a lot, um, uh, and, and determine on, you know, do we have another month or two? Uh, when should we recheck it? When should we start looking at blending? That sort of thing. With basically such a long, because you're talking about like a, a year from it, from the process to actually getting it out there, I mean things can change that time frame. I mean palettes, I guess, maybe change. So you have to do a lot of foreshadowing, I guess, to the market. How does how does that process work? Is it looking more of the past? Is it more projecting, talking to other vineyards, or what, what does that look like? You know, we we definitely do a lot of you know assessment of the the vintage and figure out what we did right or wrong in the vineyard and in the cellar. Um, but it comes down to us tasting and being a part of the wine as it develops. Um, you know, so, so you're not really looking to, to, you know, what is, what does the consumer want? Like fashion, right? Where you're going to say like, you're kind of making a, a gamble and saying like, I think that the next print is going to be leopard print. So let's do, you know, all of these shirts in leopard print. Um, with wine, it seems like it's a much, a much more, uh, gradual, uh, change. Um, and you'll, you'll know pretty quickly if your wines aren't selling that you got to change it. But yeah, that, that course that change in course can take a good period of time um, in the wine industry. So you want to try to do it right every time. Um, and, uh, and, you know, while, while they're sitting in barrel, I mean, 
there, there's really not all that much you can do. If you didn't make it right in the vineyard and in the cellar from fermentation, uh, then, then you're going to have a tough time uh, fixing it, I guess, I, I guess is I, I, what I would say. <laughs> well, now, when you talk about the idea of innovation, bring it to market, what were some of those innovation ideas or those processes that I guess you added to your, your business the second go around? You know, um, so by the glass is uh, what, what we call like anytime we are focusing in the restaurant community uh, so that our wines are, are available at a restaurant and preferably by the glass. So if somebody's just looking to grab a glass of Pinot Noir or a glass of Chardonnay, that it's more accessible rather than investing in that whole bottle. Um, so that drives trial. Um, there are a lot of brands out there that are what we call retail brands, right? You see them, you know, all over the shelves of your grocery store, at the liquor store, um, and, and those don't really have a presence in restaurants. So what we started doing was focusing heavily by the glass. And what that looks like in our industry is that is a discounted uh, uh, wholesale price to the restaurant so that they can actually pour it and make, make money by the glass. Um, and there's some, you know, some, you know, uh, shelf life issues after you open a bottle, you probably got two days, uh, to pour it out. So, but what that did was, um, it was word of mouth more or less. It gave us the opportunity to, uh, create a group of consumers out there that would try it and hopefully fall in love with it. If they liked it, buy again, and then maybe start buying bottles and, uh, and the plan worked. Um, but I think that the most important part of that is a lot of people say, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to start by the glass. And they'll give it like six months. You've got to build up demand for that product. And so like with one brand that we created, um, we took it uh, about eight years uh, of by the glass only uh, to the point where when we started to sell into retail or grocery or liquor stores, um, we started to see this massive pent up demand. And that brand went from, you know, uh, 80,000 cases to 200,000 cases to 500,000 cases uh, in, you know, a matter of, of, you know, year over year growth. So it was, it was a, a crazy time, but patience does help out a lot, helps you refine your craft. Um, if you can, if you can stick it out, uh, for that, that period of time, that's how you create great brands. Um, and so, uh, so that was really one of our more innovative, uh, ways of going to market. And, uh, nowadays, uh, we still do the same thing, but we're also doing things like partnering for cause marketing stuff. That's important to us with all the wildfires on the West coast. Um, we have one brand, Elawan, that uh, we're planting a tree for every bottle sold. We're over a million trees planted so far in the last roughly two years. Um, so, you know, it's not just cause marketing for the sake of cause marketing. It's something that we looked at and thought, we've got this issue. Uh, how can we help out with it? Um, and uh, and then we'd, we'd put that forward and have our genuine story with it so people can actually, uh, you know, feel the the importance of it from us as an organization and hopefully get behind it if they believe in it too. So I uh, started doing some things like that. And, uh, and those have been very, uh, very beneficial for awareness, not just of the wines, but also of any of the issues that, that we have, uh, you know, regionally like these fires. When you started when, with the, uh, the first brand, right. And you said you were kind of in $2 million in debt until it actually kind of, it kind of blew up and it, it went fantastic, went that route. Were you trying the same model at that time, doing it by the glass? Is that where the 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 negative was coming about? That was where we were just we were just starting, so we were ramping up production so that and planting more vineyards. So all that took a lot of capital that was going to be, you know, sitting um, <laughs> inaccessible for a long period of time. Um, and then we were also beginning our by the glass program, um, and and so. That was a, you know, roughly, you know, 2005, 2006, and then fast forward a few years, 
and uh, and we you know just had a goal of of getting out of debt and making sure that we were you know growing the company the right way. Good relationships with the banks uh, that we were working with, and uh, and they believed in our growth. We were able to you know show data, syndicated data, et cetera, that showed that we were you know growing, and so they would lend more, lend more, and then we finally got to a point where we were we were you know making some money. Um, but you know, brands aren't built overnight. Um, well, people look at some of these brands and say like, wow, that that's a new brand. You're like, well, this brand's actually like 20 years old. And, <laughs> um, and, uh, and the other, the, the other, uh, you know, one of the other brands, one that we sold took about 10 years to really, uh, get going. So, uh, so it, it took patience, but, um, it was a, you know, great payoff, um, in the end. And, you know, I think one of the biggest pieces of, of equity that we have is the brand itself. Now we got a couple of questions, and again, these are, I think, some wine questions that I'm not the greatest at. But how did you come to find timing on harvesting your Pinot Noir? Uh, so we uh, we assess things differently, and so this is kind of you know, I'd call it innovation, but it's just a different way of thinking. Um, typically, in the industry, we pick based off of the sugar level. So you say like 25 bricks, and bricks are a measurement of the solu soluble solids in the juice. So if we say uh, we're going to pick at 25 bricks, well, that's that's great. That's a very easy um, kind of uh, metric to go by. Um, I started looking at it saying like, well, there are some years where 25 bricks is low physiological maturity and there are others where it's high physiological maturity and the character of the wine is going to vary greatly. Um, and so we focused on what we call physiological maturity, which is really the, the maturity of the fruit itself and uh, the development of the vine. And so the, we're, regardless of bricks, that's kind of where, where uh, we started. So that gave us a foundation to create this style of wine and, and most importantly, consistent uh, style of wine. Um, and that's where our name Copper Cane comes from. So Copper Cane is the hardening and kind of winter hardiness of the wood um, from that year's growth that begins as kind of succulent green tissue. And as ripening progresses, it evolves into this copper color and turns hard. Um, and once that slow migration towards the tip of that cane is complete, we've purged the, the green out of the vine and therefore the green out of the, the wine. And so it, it helps us create a more consistent style. And I think consistency with a product like wine, where it really does reflect the vintage and the place where the grapes are grown, um, consistency is still appreciated by everybody out there. So if you're able to maintain a consistent style in your wine from year to year with some vintage variation, um, you're, you're, I think, going to make a lot of friends out there in the consumer world. How do you have faith, I mean, in your product, in your business? I mean, I've talked to a lot of different entrepreneurs, a lot of business owners here. And one of the things is basically um, imposter syndrome, not sure if, if you're selling the right product, if you have the right clientele base. And with you, I mean, there's a lot of time that goes into a lot of your processes there, right? And faith, I would think, has to be a very strong thing to say, hey, I'm on the right path. I'm willing to spend the money. I know I have a great product. People are going to really enjoy it. How do you keep faith? How do you keep pushing forward when you have those difficult times? You, you gotta, you just gotta believe in it. Um, I, I mean, that's, that's as simple as it is. It, it's, uh, you know, I, I believed in it so, so deeply that, um, you know, like back in, God, it was maybe Oh nine, um, that, uh, I went and just said, I'm either going to go bankrupt or, uh, or I'm going to, uh, take over the marketplace and, uh, made that bet with Pinot Noir, uh, just after, after the recession, uh, there was a lot of Pinot Noir, uh, out there grape wise that was available. Um, contracts were being canceled and everything, and I went and picked them all up and uh, was able to somewhat corner the market on Pinot and and, uh, and really grow the brand. And so, 
you, you get to that moment where you're saying like, yeah, this is working, even if it's in a small kind of, you know, uh, test pod. Um, but knowing that people like the wine, you're getting good feedback, um, you're growing consistently every year. And then at some point you either just got to say, you know, either shit or get off the pot and, uh, and let's, 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 uh, let's take this thing to the next level. And, you know, the old adage of there's no risk or there's no reward without risk. Right. I, and I think that there are points where you get to where you can easily let that, uh, potential pass by you just because you have a little too much, uh, caution in your mind about it. Um, and I think that there are some times where if you just truly believe in it, you know, you're going to work your ass off to get there. Um, you got to jump in with both feet and, uh, and, and make it work. And, uh, and so that's, that's part of it. I, I guess naturally I'm a, a risk taker. I, I enjoy the excitement of that. Um, and, uh, you know, they are, they are relatively calculated, but sometimes there's that 10% where you're like, ah, I could go either way. Um, how much do I believe it in my heart? And then you get, you just, uh, if you do believe in it, got to jump in. I mean, it's probably too having that right, right people around you, right? The people that actually can give you the honest feedback and not just say it's fantastic. Absolutely. And that's, that's one thing I'm very proud of here at Copper Cane is we started with, uh, you know, what, like five people, um, at Copper Cane when, when I started it, uh, we're up to uh, about 140 people now. Yeah. Um, and what's, what's really interesting actually, and this is something I think that all your viewers may, may very much appreciate if you're um, an entrepreneur and wanting to get into business for yourself, um, I uh, had a, a tour of this group of um, people that they were professional people, but they had all retired from their jobs at an early age. Uh, they were all at the top level of their jobs and they all became professional um, uh, uh, board members. So they worked on a number of boards together and they'd get together a couple times a year. And so they came to wine country and I met with them. And they were asking me some questions um, about, you know, what our structure of our business is and, and you know, what our plan was going forward. And uh, the, the one thing that they that always stuck out to me was they asked about who manages my HR. And up until that point, I looked at HR as really just, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of, of having employees, uh, making sure that we had a, you know, good health care coverage and uh, making sure that we're documenting things correctly. <laughs> And, and they explained to me in detail the importance of a great HR person. Um, and if you're planning to build a team, you need somebody who is uh, proficient in recruitment um, and that, that is really good at vetting people out. So I immediately went out and started uh, scouting for that person and uh, brought an amazing woman on board that helped us, uh, you know, still to this day, just continuing to build the company in the right direction, creating a great team. And then, you know, when it comes to a team, so number one, get yourself a great HR person, uh, that, that knows about recruitment. Uh, and, uh, and then, uh, number two, if you're going to be involved, you got to be fully involved and your culture is really determined by you. Um, and I think that's an important thing that we really try to, to, you know, push home here where I started off with kind of two, you know, Northern stars. I wanted to make sure I was involved in every product we produced, um, and wanted to make sure, uh, cause otherwise we're just kind of, you know, making trinkets, right. Um, so I want to stand behind the products, the team stands behind the products. And so it, it needs to have that, that all connected. Um, and the other was that, um, I, I came from a family company. I want to stay, uh, as a family company and I want to know everybody personally that's, uh, in our organization. So those are kind of the two pieces that really set the foundation of the culture going forward. And to this day, we still adhere to that. Um, and then, uh, and then it's, it's just a matter of, you know, you know, some people that are maybe more corporate minded, uh, it doesn't work for them, but you know, most people that like a little more, uh, freedom and, and, you know, wearing different hats and, uh, expressing themselves differently, I think do really well in an environment like this. 
we got another we got another question out here. What are your provisions, Joe? <laughs> well, it depends on what you consider provisions. Um, so we uh, we're doing uh, cigars, which uh, we don't sell um, uh, really into any stores. So that's just something we do exclusively. Um, and uh, we're starting on spirits, which we haven't released any. Uh, and we'll probably plan on releasing that next June. Started that in 2013. So been aging a lot of spirits uh, since then. Now, with venturing it off, did your did your father have any provisions when he was doing had the winery going, or is this something totally outside of uh, something you didn't grow up with? I guess. Uh, you mean the as far as Cigars the and spirits oh no. No, it was just uh, just wine with my family. So that was kind of all. That was what they focused on. That's what they still focus on to this day. Uh, so where do you when you venture out and kind of expand your brand into like spirits and cigars? What's the process look like there? Because it, it's something that maybe you weren't don't know as the back of your hand, I guess. Yeah, it's ex exactly so. In, in the let's uh, start with the alcohol side. So in the the alcohol business there are a couple different ways to go but with wine you can go direct to consumer which generally would be smaller scale or you can go with the three-tier system and most spirits or most states require with spirits you go through the three-tier system so we sell to a distributor distributor sells to an account which could be a restaurant or a retailer so um and then we typically make the sale at the account and then we tell the distributor how much they want and then make sure we manage reorders and that sort of thing and servicing the account so a distributor does just that they distribute they don't necessarily sell so much as they distribute um so so with that i think that there are some similarities between the two uh wine and spirits um that said they're completely different uh divisions within distributors and the people we're talking to on the purchasing side from retail or restaurants are going to be completely different as well so we're going to take the same approach that we did with wine and apply it to spirits but with a separate sales team that is knowledgeable in spirits, so we're not overburdening our wine sales team, which is you know uh, specializing in wine. So that'll be the plan and the route that we go there, um, uh, getting into spirits. And uh, and we we know that from our relationships that we've built over time with our distributors, that they'll be able to back us up because a lot of brands just get put in the barn. It's a sad thing to see great ideas that just kind of get put into dis to distribution and don't don't get to see the you know light of the actual marketplace. Um, so we built those relationships where now we can say, Hey, here's our plan. We have it well laid out. Um, great communication from our team is what we always expect of our team and of their team as well. And then, um, and then get it out in the marketplace. Now we're not going to be going up against the big brands like Tito's or anything like that. We're much smaller in scale, uh, much more boutique to be, it, it, it's much more of a craft spirit operation. So it's going to be a little more of a, you know, we want to make sure we're we're targeting the right accounts, um, uh, bringing people in, mixologists and bartenders doing competitions with our uh, spirits um, and trying to get that community involved in the product uh, either before or right in the beginning of our launch. Do you feel there's going to be different ways of marketing the product? I know you talked about basically having some bartenders and competitions. Is there any other differences, I guess, in uh, marketing the products? I, I think it'll be quite different. I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're a bit stale in the wine business, honestly, when it comes to marketing. I mean, if you think about how people market their brands in the wine business, it's, you know, typically a dinner table and maybe a big Italian guy and he's got his glass up and he's, you know, <laughs> like, like that kind of stuff, right? Champagne gets away with the same way spirits uh, does their marketing. It's lively, it's fun, it's exciting. And, uh, and it, it looks like, hey, I'm going to have a great time. Um, so, 
you kind of get those elements. We're trying to pull a little more out of the world of kind of spirits and champagne into our wine side. Um, but I think that we'll definitely be taking some of the wine aspects of that more traditional approach, handcrafted elements, um, and, uh, and apply those into the spirit side. You brought up the idea. I mean, the $2 million are you behind previously, that seems like a big hurdle. And were there any other big hurdles in kind of building your brand over the years that, you know, maybe even close to pushing you out of the business or anything that was just like really, really tough kind of overcoming? You know, uh, production space is, uh, that was a, that was a big issue, uh, with a brand that's growing at the level that, that, uh, we were growing. Um, you know, it's, it's not just physical capacity. Um, it's also what your permit is on, on how much wine you can make. And that's not something that, you know, the government doesn't work like us. Right. <laughs> so, so you're, you're, you're going to say, you know, um, Hey, this brand is growing. Well, I need to grow my facility permit by, you know, another 200,000 gallons or 500,000 gallons. Well, then you go to the County and you say, you know, tell them exactly what you want. Then it's, you have to go through the whole process of re-engineering everything from your wastewater system, uh, to your footprint, uh, to all your mechanical elements. Um, and, and redesign it and then build or rebuild. Um, and so that takes years, right? So uh, it, it's, you, you know, you can't plan so much for your success uh, in the wine business because oftentimes that lead time doesn't give you that ability. So we ran into the issue of uh, where we could produce and how much we could produce. Um, and we were, we were just extremely scrappy about it. Um, we were able to make it through, but it wasn't, you know, without a lot of hardship. Uh, but we started uh, renting facilities uh, through, you know, throughout the state uh, for storage. Um, our our team was stretched super thin for a period of time uh, because one location really does need the same manpower as as our core location needs. And uh, and again, our culture is kind of like that's that's a big piece of what we do. So if we're taking people out of that culture and trying to, you know, have them bring on new new team members at a different location. Um, it, it just became a very difficult scenario. So we ended up doing that for a few years. Um, and then uh, we ended up selling that brand and then uh, consolidating everything down into one location, which is a, a dream uh, to be able to do. But that was that was a big hardship uh, at the time. Uh, but I just call it growing pains. Um, you know, we were fortunate to have success uh, and we were going to find any way to make it happen. Uh, and, uh, and, and we did that. Well, let's say we're talking in five years from now. And you mean talk about projection, where are you going to be in five years? Where are your brand going to be in five years? So, uh, okay. So I've, I've, uh, like I said, I've got small aspirations. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to be the leading luxury wine supplier in the United States. That's, that's what, uh, that's what our goal is. Um, and you know, you can look at that from a total dollar standpoint. Um, but, but base it off of a minimum price point at retail, and, and that's kind of the pool that we play in kind of 20 and above. So we run from about 20 to 150. Um, and, and so we're going to keep focusing on, on, uh, on that segment. And that's really where the majority of the market is moving to right now. Uh, you know, what everybody hears is premium premiumization. Um, and so we're well entrenched in that and able to grow. Uh, we have capacity at, at this winery here. Uh, so going to continue doing that. So um, five years, I'd say, uh, I'd say we got a shot at, at achieving that goal. Um, we break it down into, uh, categories. So like, uh, bell gloss being, um, already kind of at the top of the heap and that, that, you know, um, $50 plus Pinot Noir. Uh, but it's also one of the oldest Pinot Noirs out there from California. 
Um, and uh, working on Bowen, a relatively young brand. Quilt is, is grown really well uh, for the Napa Cab segment. So um, while you know, it's, it, it, they are big aspirations, um, we do see them as uh, achievable. Um, and it's not too dissimilar from, you know, my dad told me, he said, you know, he's like, you know, Joe, I, I was going to be happy about or happy for you and, and impressed if you sold 20,000 cases of Pinot Noir. And we were selling, you know, over a half a million cases by that point. Um, so it's, it's just a, you know, a gauge of what, you know, you, you look at as success. And I recall my dad was always in support of me and, and, you know, always, you know, told me push harder, push harder. Um, but there were a lot of people that were naysayers like, no, there's no way you're ever going to get there. No, there's, that, that's a pipe dream. Um, and I just kept on, uh, uh, with my focus and, and, uh, the team kept their focus. Uh, the team believed in everything we were doing. Um, and, and I, I think that that's because great communication and uh, just, you know, partnering. And we don't, I mean, we have a very flat organization. I put myself on the same level as everybody else here. And, and I think that, uh, that that is something that is appreciated and really brings everybody together. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that any dream is too crazy. With all your success, I mean, over the years, how often does your father come to you to advice for advice now? <laughs> he, he does rarely uh you know i i saw him over the weekend um and uh you know it, it's funny every year at the end of the year we start talking about uh the big scary beast in the room which is estate planning um so, <laughs> and uh i've got six kids uh my dad i'm, I'm one of four kids um and so he's always we're always going back and forth because like i'm i'm super entrenched in in, in that, I want to make sure that, you know, our, our system, our, our tech system is not set up to foster uh, family businesses um, being passed down to the next generation. Um, it's, it's as plain as simple as that. So we have to do a lot of planning on that part to make sure that we're moving the right pieces in the right place so that we're able to um, uh, easily move it down without a major burden on on them. Um, and so uh, so he, he does ask about that because I do keep very up to date on that. Uh, when it comes to to winemaking stuff, you know, <laughs> I I think it's just a little more of kind of like a no, you're you're still a kid, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'll, I'll finish it off with with this question. Um, you you brought the idea that the time frame it takes to build, I mean, to build a vineyard and kind of from start to finish and the costs associated with it if you didn't have any kind of background in the wine industry and you were looking to actually start your brand today, I mean, maybe someone listening and looking to start their brand today. Yeah. What's the route that you would advise them to take? The, the route, if you want to, if you want to be on the, there's, there's two routes and I'll run through both of them, but if you want to be on the fine wine side of things, you've got to start with the grapes. So that's getting into a community of a place, you know, say you like Napa Valley cab. So you want to get into Napa Valley cab. Come here, spend time, get to know people. I mean, it's as easy as like networking at the Rutherford Grill. Just sit up at the bar and get to know people. And and uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty open arms community. Um, and uh, and then end up uh, signing, you know, writing up a contract and purchasing fruit from a grower. That's the quickest and easiest way to get into it. And then you contract with a what we call a custom crush facility. And that's um, there are a handful of them here. And you pay them maybe four or five hundred dollars per ton to process it and uh, meaning uh, ferment it and then put it in barrel and, and age it, and then you'll be bottling it. Um, so that's one route. If you have a brand that you believe, you know, a, a style of wine you want to create and a brand that you want to bring to market and you want to be focusing on the higher end and really something true to form, 
then that's, I think, the, the true way to do it. Um, and during that period of time, getting relationships with distributors out there, even in one state, don't ever try to take on like all states or, or even a quarter of them at a time. Start small, start local and, and, and focus on that. The other way is if it's more of a marketing approach where you have a great brand idea um, and, uh, and, and you want to bring that to market, then there's, uh, there's the bulk wine market where people will sell um, anything from your lowest grade, you know, two buck chuck all the way up to, you know, $100 um, Cabernet. So they may not have a market for it, but they'll be able to sell it in bulk and then you purchase that and then bottle it um, and then bring it out to the market. So that's the quickest turnaround for your money. Um, but it's also a little more of like, you know, the negotiant business. Uh, you're not you're not actually involved in the making of the wine. Uh, you're, you're more of the proprietor and, uh, and marketer. Um, so it just depends on what route you go, but that is definitely the quickest turnaround. Uh, in, in the in the best case scenario, if you have a little bit of extra cash and you can plant five acres of vineyard and you can build a little winery and uh, you got you know ten years to wait, um, then uh, then that's the way to do it. But that's definitely more of a more of a long passion project. All right, I actually did I actually did lie. Sorry about that. I do have I do have another question. All right, okay. let's say you're in an elevator, right, and you're trying to get the person in the elevator to get their mouth to water about one of your, one of your wines. How would you describe it? So someone's listening right now and they're like, Oh my gosh, I've listened to Joe. He sounds like he has a great product, but can he describe it for me? How would you describe one of your, one of your wines? So I'll, I'll, I'll go with, with Pinot Noir, right? So Pinot Noir is, um, it is a lighter structured wine. And to me, that means that it is, uh, it is much more velvety in style. It's voluptuous. It uh, just coats your mouth and, and, um, and really brings out all of the pleasantries of its flavor. It's a very feminine wine um, in, in many ways uh, because of that, because it's so delicate and elegant, and but also very expressive, um, and it can be emotional at times. Uh, <laughs> but um, but it, is, it is, you know, a fruit-forward style, a lot of nice brown spice components like cinnamon, clove, nutmeg, and, uh, and again, I think the texture is what really um, turns me on about it, where it's just this envelopment of your palate and that, that voluptuousness uh, just really kind of, you know, makes you, makes you uh, enjoy it in the moment, but then it also has the vibrancy and its acidity to, you know, make you want to take another sip or another bite of whatever you're eating. Oh, man. I got my mouth watering. Hopefully, everyone, everyone listening got some. I got a little drool down your down your lip. Now, if someone's listening right now and they want to basically go out and purchase it, what's the best place that they can go buy your wine, follow your journey? What's the best way, Joe? So uh, you can find us on Instagram at either you know Bellgloss, Elowan, Quilt, or Bowen, or Copper Cane. Uh, Copper Cane is more of our kind of corporate uh, corporate um, hub there. Um, but you can also find it at uh, CopperCaneWines.com or Bellgloss.com. Um, any of our, uh, any of our websites are, uh, easy, easy to find and they all kind of go back into, um, the same, uh, e-com site so we can, uh, um, uh, purchase them in one cart. Uh, if you're in Napa, I would recommend coming to our tasting room called Quilt and Company, where we pour all of these wines, plus a few more that are, uh, you know, very small production, all of our experimental lots where we're trying to showcase something very unique and special, but, um, it's also just a way to experience our wines and be able to purchase them there. Uh, and then, uh, also we have a, a restaurant we opened a few years ago called Avow, which is in downtown Napa. Um, and it's just an exploration of, of great food and wine pairings, not just ours. I've got my family's wines in there. A lot of my friends' wines. Um, 
but it's just a you know a great place for the community to uh, to join in and have some fun and enjoy good food and good wine. Well, thank you, Joe, for being here. Hopefully, everyone listening got some great nuggets right there. If you're looking to get in the wine industry, really think it out. Make sure you have the money. Make sure you have faith. But it'd probably be easier just to go find Joe and get one of the wines. <laughs> Big, thanks, Joe. That's, that's, that is great advice. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Please subscribe. Please share. And go grab a glass of wine. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.TheEnriquezGroup.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. The Enriquez Group, signing off.